morning. Children are dismissed at this time. Dr. Kevin. Thank you, Tabitha. We're going to be in John 18 again. John 18, verses 28 through 40 this morning. I encourage you to have a physical copy of God's Word out and open in front of you. The text can be found on page 904. We believe here that the Bible is truly God's Word. And as He is the God of truth, this Word is true in all that it asserts. And so all we seek to do in this time is do the best that we can to explain the truth of that word and apply it to our lives. So this is a true text. And as this one is specifically a true text about truth, you especially need that text open, checking it, considering it, asking yourself, is this actually true? And if it's actually true, what does that mean for me? If this is truth, is it my truth? That's all the rage these days, isn't it? My truth. My truth right now is that I'm getting old and that my body is betraying me. I found out that I've been told that that's offensive to some of you who are older than me. So I, I apologize. I know I'm not that old. Uh, but hurt hips, in a few weeks it will have been two years uh, since I have started to deal with this problem. It's insane in my memory. Two, two years of this. But I do enjoy running. Uh, I think a legitimate enjoyment for the most part, I think. And so right now I'm pursuing all legitimate options and I'm currently hopped up on two cortisone shots in each hip and I'm happily running without pain and it's wonderful. Um, it won't last for long, but it's nice right now. I was running through Sunnyside this week and I did know, notice a sign in a window. All kinds of sermon illustrations come as you run and do various things. But I noticed a sign in a window in Sunnyside, of course, which said that you cannot make my truth unspeakable. You cannot make my truth unspeakable. What does that mean? And don't we hear stuff like that all the time? Something about my truth, finding my truth, speaking my truth, living my truth. What does that mean? And is it true? So this is one of the key ideas of our culture currently. You are possibly tempted to think and speak in these terms. So let's, let's consider that. And let's consider that in light of our text and the truth of our text. Why did Christ come? We could give many answers to that most important question. Many good answers, many bad answers, many true answers, many false answers. But we rarely give the answer that Christ himself gives in our text. I have come to bear witness to the truth. Why is that how Christ chooses to summarize and characterize his coming at the very end? And what does his claim about the truth have to do with our culture's claims about my truth? Well, let's see. This passage is about the kingship and the kingdom of Christ. I'm going to make the case this week and probably next week that everything is about the kingship and the kingdom of Christ. And so we're going to begin to focus there. There are many things to see in this truth text. I want to draw your attention to three true things this morning. And I think we're going to come back and give this text one more crack next week as well. And then we'll move on. Uh, but we're going to walk through this text and focus on three things. The king, the truth, the substitute. That's it. 
Nice and simple. The king, the truth, the substitute. We are about to read Pilate's infamous question, what is truth? And I want you to be considering that question as we go. What is truth and how should we live if this is true? If, if he, if Christ truly is the truth. So we're going to do this morning what Pilate is going to say in our next passage. Behold your king. What if this man is both the king and the truth, but is also the substitute? I could change everything. So let's consider it. Let's first read the text. Let's read God's word, which is true in all that it asserts. I will read it for you, but I invite you to follow along uh, as I read it. John chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 28 and we will read through the end of the chapter in verse 40. But please pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do, did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Bow with me and let me pray first for our time. Father, you are God, uh, you are King, you are Creator, you are Lord, you are the truth. Father, we come now before your word, which is truth, this word revealing to us your Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, I ask that you would help us in this time to consider that which is true, that which is most real, that which is of first importance. We have all lived in various ways uh, this week as if our own truth or our own feelings or our own desires was what were most true or most real or, or most important. Father, we regularly and repeatedly need you to, to draw us back to the main and the first and the ultimate things. Father, we need you to give us eyes to behold our King, to, to love 
our King, to live in light of who he is and, and what he has done for us here. So, Father, please help me to be clear. Father, help my goal to be to glorify Christ in communicating this word clearly to us and applying it to our lives. Father, help us to give great attention to the things of God in this time. And we ask that you would do what we cannot uh, work in our hearts by your spirit uh, through your word. Uh, give us great love for Jesus Christ. Um, draw sinners to him in this time we pray. Amen. Point number one, we start with the king. Verse 28, we last left things with Peter denying and a rooster crowing. Christ has been betrayed and arrested. Christ has been tried and denied. So in verse 28, we read, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. We talked about this a little bit last week. John is intentionally constructing his count of what happened to communicate certain key ideas. John often expects us to, to know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have told us about uh, what's been going on at this time as well. And so he tends to give us a bit of a different perspective by leaving out certain scenes and including certain new scenes. So look back at verse 24. This is what we saw last week. Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember, Annas was the former high priest. He was deposed by the Romans. It seems that he was still acting as the true high priest, the, the true power and authority in Israel. His son-in-law Caiaphas is the current actual high priest in Rome's eyes, at least. And so after Annas questions Christ, he then sends him to be questioned officially by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And John entirely leaves that out. That, that, that scene, we just, we just skipped all of that. We considered it recently in Matthew 26, where I made the case in Sunday school that the exchange between Christ and Caiaphas is ultimately about authority. That is a, it is the clash of authority, and authority is extremely important. But if you look ahead to 19 verses 10 and 11, that authority issue is going to come up then. So we're going to save that for when we get to part two of Pilate. But the Jewish authorities in the trial before Caiaphas have been seeking false testimony against him who is true. Caiaphas puts Jesus under the oath. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says that he is. Caiaphas then dramatically and ridiculously tears his robe and they accuse Christ of blasphemy, declaring that he deserves death. And then they begin to spit on his face and strike him and mock him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The humiliation of Christ has begun. And all of that has happened between John 18, 27 and 28. And so now we're shifting from the Jewish trial to the Roman trial, the theological trial to the political trial. And I want you to notice how the case against the Christ shifts as well. That was all about who he claimed to be as the Messiah. Well, now what's it going to all be about? Back to verse 28. Christ is taken to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not themselves enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Stop. That's some more masterful writing on John's part. We are going to come back 
to this very important verse at the end and notice how our passage opens and closes on the same note, telling us what this whole thing is about. But for now, I want you to notice another detail that John adds that we find in no other Gospels, and it's an enlightening one. These Jewish religious authorities would not enter into this Gentile place so that they would not be defiled. And what dark and disturbing irony. These men are in the middle of playing a key role in the greatest injustice in history. They've just paid a man to betray an innocent man. They've just trumped up false charges and condemned that man to death. They have just overseen him being spit on and beaten and mocked. But they dare not darken the doorstep of a Gentile that they might be defiled. Uh, they are already well defiled. I see the absurdity of sin and their great concern for ceremonial defilement and their no concern for moral defilement. And this is tragically typical of all false religion. It is quite common for men to pay great attention to the ritual and pay no attention to the moral. There were a couple of guys that were sleeping in the parking lot across from our house for a while. I sometimes stand at our window and read and pray there to not be sitting all the time. And I always found it sad when they would, very evidently drunk, stumble over to the statue of Mary and cross themselves, and I assume say a few Hail Marys, right? Concern for ceremony, statue crossing prayer, no concern for morals, right? Dead drunk. And that's just a stark illustration of what is quite common. You can even make uh, a case, at least, that there is a correlation, almost an inverse relationship between excessive concern for ritual and true biblical morality. I won't attempt to make that case here. But it is clear here, at least, that these religious leaders have no concern with true righteousness and justice. And so they bring the only ever truly righteous and just man and hand him over to the Romans. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them. There's this comical kind of back and forth that John is doing. Pilate goes in, Pilate goes out, Pilate goes in, Pilate goes out. We'll consider that more next time. But Pilate goes out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. We'll come back to 31 and 32 at the end. Verse 33, here it is. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. And called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Right? And this is the theme. This is, this is the big idea around which this whole thing revolves. Right? Look ahead to chapter 19, verse 2. They place a crown of thorns on Christ's head. A crown is the kingly symbol of power, authority, sovereignty, glory. Here is literally a twisted, torturous perversion of that symbol. Then there's the purple robe, another symbol of royalty. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 14, Behold your King. Verse 19, Pilate writes the inscription on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So this whole thing is about, this is the question, who is this man? Christmas song. This, this is Christ the King. Well, let's be honest. This is America. Right? Our origin story 
is the casting off of a king. Our most famous and founding document is a declaration of independence from that king, which states the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Such is now the necessity which constrains these states to alter their former systems of government. We don't like kings. Plus, Thursday night was curses. Now we're talking about kings. Doesn't this all just kind of sound more like a fairy tale than real life? We got curses, we got kings. What does it mean that Christ is the king and why does it matter? Well, first, let's go back to Pilate. Let's consider him for a second. Pilate was not the king, but Pilate represented the king. Caesar was the king. The title Caesar just comes from the last name of, of Julius Caesar, who about 80 years before this, crossed over the Rubicon, marched on Rome, set himself up as dictator over the Roman Empire. He technically wasn't the first Roman emperor. It was his adopted son, Augustus, who would be counted the first Roman emperor, the first Caesar, or the first king. Augustus dies in the year 14, so about 16 years before this, Augustus was succeeded by the second emperor, his adopted son, Tiberius. And he is the Caesar or the king at this moment. He is the Caesar, the king, who appoints Pilate and who Pilate serves and represents in Judea for about 10 years from around the year 26 to 36. So this is happening right in the middle of Pilate's rule. Pilate doesn't seem like all that great of a guy. We'll see that in what follows. We know a bit about him from other historical sources. He was no friend of the Jews, and the Jews were no fan of him. So again, the irony in these enemies coming together around Christ. Josephus tells us about one instance where Pilate took all the money out of the temple, right? Kind of like the, the tithes and the offerings for, for the upkeep of the temple, sacred money, and he used it to build his own aqueduct, right? So he can get better water into the, to the city. The Jews understandably gathered and protested uh, this crime. Pilate hid a bunch of his soldiers in the crowd and then had a bunch of the men like sneak attacked and, and slaughtered. Right? That's, that's Pilate. Luke 13.1 tells us about a time when Pilate mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. So again, not a great guy. Not a great ruler. But Pilate and his position makes a little more sense of his question. Are you the king of the Jews? Why is that his question? Because Caesar is the king of the Jews. And Pilate represents him and answers to him. And you can't have two kings. Kings do not like contenders and challengers to their thrones. More Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of the year. I love we're closing with a Christmas song. And it was Andy's idea, not mine. I love that. I'm very excited. But Matthew chapter 2, what happens when the wise men come to Herod the king, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's kind of awkward. Uh, I'm the king of the Jews. Hey, why don't you guys go find this child and come back and tell me so that I too can go and, and worship him with you? The wise men are wise. They know what's up. They don't return to Herod and Herod slaughters all the male children in Bethlehem. Kings don't like competition. Kings kill competition. 
So Pilate is trying to sort out the identity of this man, and he is, and if he is actually a threat to the Rome, to Rome and the throne, are you the king of the Jews? In the Greek, the you is put first. It's called, it's called emphatic. It's put in the position of emphasis. Maybe Pilate is looking at this man saying something more. He's, he's been up all night. He's already been beaten. Maybe he's saying something more like, you are the king of the Jews? Really? You? Verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? That's an important verse. That's an explicit demonstration of what is implicit in this whole exchange. It appears that Pilate is questioning Jesus when it is actually Jesus who is questioning Pilate. It appears that Pilate is judging Jesus when it is actually Jesus who is judging Pilate. It appears that Jesus is on trial when it's actually Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, and you and me and the whole world who are actually on trial. Have you had that experience yet when you think that you're reading the Bible, but then all of a sudden you realize that it's, it's the Bible that has been reading you all along, living and active? This is sort of like that. And Christ is in full control here. Christ is actually where he wants to be, when he wants to be, with whom he wants to be. And so he gives Pilate an opportunity to consider here and answer, hey, do you actually care? Are you actually curious or are you just bowing to the will and the whims of other men, both Caesar and the Jewish authorities? Verse 35, Pilate diverts and deflects. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Opportunity lost. Pilate refuses to give serious consideration to the Christ. Right, this is just another obnoxious Jewish matter. This ultimately means nothing to me. I have no real stake in this game except for making sure I don't lose my position and my power. Am I a Jew? You wonder coming up, coming right after the are you the king of the Jews, if there's any sense in which Pilate is considering and dismissing, like, are you my king? Am I a Jew? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you my king? Maybe not. But of course Christ is. As the king, he is Pilate's king and Caesar's king and your king and my king. We don't like kings. So what kind of king is this? Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And I might, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Two big things there from a two big verse. I'm really having to work hard to restrain myself here from going on and election season is approaching the futility of politics tirade here. Must resist. I will spare you. But don't get excited. It's going to come at some point in the next year. Two big things from that verse. One, Christ is a king. That's clear. Are you a king? My kingdom. Yes. Right? Only kings have kingdoms. So if it's his kingdom, he's a king. He's the king. Are you a king? Yes, I am a king. But two, his kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king, but not the type of king that you are thinking. Yes, I have a kingdom, but it's not the political kingdom that you're thinking about and worried 
about. Mine is a spiritual kingdom. He is an otherworldly king, and his is an otherworldly kingdom. And there's so much that we could talk about here, but we're going to try to stick to the main thing for now. And the main thing here is that the religious authorities want Jesus out of the way because he is a threat to their kingdom, their power, and their authority. And so they present him to Pilate, not as a blasphemer, but as a king, as a threat to Caesar's kingdom. And Christ's response is that he's not that type of king. And his is not that type of kingdom. Which means that he is, at that moment at least, no threat to Caesar's kingdom. Everyone wants to form and fashion Jesus into their own image. Everyone wants Jesus to be about what they are about. We all do it. But it's especially popular today to make Jesus into activist Christ, political Christ, overthrower of the oppressors Christ. Ironically, making Christ into the very thing the Jews accuse him of being here and that he denies being here. My kingdom is not of this world. He is not that kind of king. He has not come this time for that kind of purpose. Well, why has he come? Well, let's, let's keep moving. We'll circle back to some of this. But first, point number two, let's consider the truth. Let's consider Christ the truth. Look at verse 37. What a back and forth this is. It's so good. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That at least to me is an unexpected answer. Are you a king? I was born into the pur- for this purpose. I've born in or I've come into the world to to be a king, to be the king. He doesn't say that. What's the connection between the king and the truth? Why is it? Are you a king? I've come to bear witness to the truth. It's a little strange, but a lot important. And I'm already a little frustrated because I know I'm not going to quite be able to do this justice. Let's maybe start with Pilate's question in verse 38. Here's how he responds infamously. What is truth? It's hard to know exactly how to read Pilate there. Is he genuinely asking as a seeker? Is he dismissively asking as a skeptic? Is he contemptuously asking as a scoffer? It at least seems that like he's not genuinely asking as he doesn't even wait for an answer and he goes right back out to the Jews. Don't make the same mistake. We must care about what truth truly is. We must know what truth truly is uh, as some sort of conception of truth. My truth is at the very heart of our cultural moment. So what is truth? I will try not to bore you. But if we really wanted to get into it, philosophers talk about different theories of truth. There are generally five basic theories. The correspondence theory of truth, the semantic, the coherence, the pragmatic, the deflationary. Five theories of truth. And before your eyes start to glaze over, don't worry, we're not going to run through all of that. I just want to just like demonstrate how silly and complicated things have to get as you depart from the truth. The Greek word in our text is aletheia. Pretty timely, as last night at 11.15, Violet aletheia Lee 
was born into the world. She is the truth. Um, she is here. This is, this is that word. But in classical Greek, aletheia was used synonymously quite often for reality. Reality is that which is real. Reality is that which is. And that's all truth is. It is not all that complicated. Truth is simply that which accords with reality. It is that which corresponds with reality, with the way things are. This would be the correspondence theory of truth. Again, it's not a theory. It's, it's just it's truth. And truth is one of John's great themes as bearing witness to the truth. According to Christ, the king is the very purpose for which he has come. That must make truth very important. Flip back to chapter one. I want you to look there for a minute. I'm going to be in two places for a second. John one and John eight. I propose that when we finish John, we should go back and preach through 1, 1 through 18 again. This prologue is so wonderful and so important. I won't do it because you'd fire me, but it'd be good. But you know by now that John intentionally echoes Genesis 1-1 in John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're going to be getting back to Genesis next year, but I am sure that you remember that I titled our first sermon on Genesis 1, The King Creates His Kingdom. That's what's happening in Genesis 1. The King has come and He is establishing, He is setting up, He is creating and populating His kingdom. And who was doing all this creating? John 1 verse 3. All things were made through Him. And without him, the word was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John is overwhelming us from the outset with the absolute majesty and glory and centrality of this Christ. Already we know that he's the word of God, he was with God, he was God, he's creator, he's life, he's light. This is what it means for Christ to be King it means that he's everything. He's he's the center. He is the king, the Lord, the ruler over all. And then in John 1 9, we read that this one amazingly is coming into the world. Verse 14. This is why we're here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and Truth, full of truth, right? that which is real, that which is. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's what it means that Christ has come to bear witness to the truth. That which is, that which is most real. God is, God's name, Yahweh, is so important. He is, I am who I am. He is existence itself. He is the independent one upon which everything else revolves and depends. God is that which is most real. He is that which stands at the very center of reality around which the whole of reality revolves. Now flip to John chapter 8. Such a good chapter. A lot of what's going on here revolves around truth. Look first at verse 12. He's trying to establish why this is one of John's themes and why it's so important. 
John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am, I mean, that's Exodus 3, I am, I'm the one who is, I am the light of the world. Light reveals, declares, makes known, gives life. Now look at the end of verse 23. I am not of this world. So he's just told Pilate his kingdom is not of this world. He's just said that he was born, and probably referring to his humanity, He's just said that he has come into the world, probably referring to his divinity, to bear witness to the truth. Again, what truth? Verse 24. Look at John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What a truth that is. What a confrontational truth. What a kind truth truth if it's true why jump down to verse 34 truly truly i say to you yeah that's jesus saying pay attention what i'm about to say is certain and trustworthy and true everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin what if that's true what if all those people trying to be nice trying to pursue justice, trying to be a good person, trying to live out my truth, what if it's true that they are actually only slaves to sin? Just like every single one of us were. This is the crystal clear truth of Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All are dead in trespasses and sins, slaves to sin. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And why is that? Hey, keep reading in John 8. Look at verse 39. John 8, 39 through 59. It's this fascinating back and forth between Jesus and the Jews about identity. Who is Jesus? Uh, who are these Jewish religious authorities? And in verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says in verse 40, nope, like father, like son. If Abraham was your father, you'd be like Abraham, doing what Abraham did. You, you're trying to kill me, even though I tell you the truth. Just told them about their sin and their slavery to it. They up the, stake, they up the stakes in verse 41. They say, God is our father. Isn't that what everyone just assumes today? The, the universal fatherhood of God. We're, we're all God's children. Jesus disagrees. Verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. They do not love Jesus. Thus God is not their father. But if God is not their father, who is? Verse 44. This is why we're here. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's a huge verse. And it takes us right back to the beginning of Genesis. God has created everything. The king has created his kingdom, and he has done so by speaking. God said, and let there be light. And there was. It's amazing. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Hebrews eleven three. 3, listen to this. By faith, we understand. Do we understand this? Hebrews eleven three. 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's a question for you. Truth is about reality. What is real? What is most real to you? What is ultimate reality for you? Now, our culture is confused and contradictory here. For most, what is real in the terms of Hebrews 11 verse 3 is, is what is seen. You could call this materialism. Not necessarily materialism in the sense of, of loving and living for money and things. That is a function of this. And materialism makes miserable, though we are all still prone to the lie. But by materialism, I simply mean the, the idea that, that matter is all that there is. What is seen is what is. What is seen is what is most real. Matter matters most. Matter is the most real stuff. This, this world, what is, what is seen, that's materialism. We are living in a material world. Madame. But the strange and what seems contradictory development, though it's not if we had time to go back and trace it, is alongside that materialism, the increasing belief that we could call, some have called emotivism. We don't use that word much anymore. We could just call it emotionalism. And I'm not using that word very technically there. But what I mean by emotionalism is the idea that what is most real is what I feel. My truth. Truth is not that which corresponds with reality, but that which corresponds with fancy, fantasy, feeling. What is most real to you? What is ultimate reality for you? What is true? It is by faith that we know that everything was made by the word of God. That what is seen is made out of what is not seen. And that makes what is not seen, that makes word ultimate reality. And that's directly what Satan attacks in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Did God actually say... You will not surely die. You will be like God. Lies. He takes the truth and he twists. Why is that how the adversary, the enemy, chooses to attack? Because by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Because the, the words of God are fundamental reality. They are what is most True. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so Satan attacks there. And in so doing, he attacks reality itself. He attacks at what is most true, the word of God and the people of God who were created for God to know God and to relate to God and to trust God based upon his good and living and active word. And they listen and we listen. We believe the lie. We reject the truth in an attempt to be like God and to actually to, to be God himself. My truth. This is why we need a fuller and better understanding of what sin is. It's not just making a mistake. It's not just breaking a couple of not that important rules. Sin strikes at the very heart of reality itself. 
Sin seeks not only to dethrone God, but to de-God God. It is an assault on God. It is the attempted murder of God. It is attempted deicide. And as God is king, it is attempted regicide. It just means that the killing of the king. The king who is truth and light and life. And this is why sin is slavery. This is why the wages of sin is death. And this, all of this is the truth that Christ has come to bear witness to. And this is why he's revealing that he has come to bear witness to the truth. That's why he's doing it at the very end. As he stands on trial only a few hours away from his death. The truth that he has come to bear witness to is the truth of God himself, who he is in all his holiness and glory, standing at the very center of reality. The truth of man himself, who we are in all of our rebellion and sin, attempting to stand at the very center of reality, but ending up standing only on the brink of hell. And then the truth of salvation, the only way for such rebellious sinners to be saved. Which is what? Point number three. It's substitution, of course. Last week, and this week, and next week, and the next week, and the next week. Every week. He came to bear witness to the truth of salvation through substitution. Christ, the truth. Truth is personal. Christ is reality. Christ stands at the center of everything. Christ, the King, the Creator, the Ruler, the Lord of all, is also Christ, the substitute. And that is what is so good about the gospel. It is the best news. Right, go back to our text. We've been in John 1, John 8, now back to John 1, 8, John 18. Go back to the beginning of our text. We skipped this. Now I want you to see it. Verse 28. Why would the Jewish authorities not enter into this Gentile building? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Which is about what? Substitution. Exodus 12. Every firstborn of the land shall die unless, unless you take a lamb and you slaughter the lamb. And then you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorposts. And then when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There has been a decree of death and either the firstborn dies or if you hear and heed, if you trust the truth of the Lord's word, the lamb dies in the firstborn's place. The lamb dies. The child lives. Salvation through substitution. And this whole scene, this whole second half of John's gospel is situated around the Passover. 13.1 Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How did he love them to the end? By dying for them in the end. By taking their place. Now look at verse 31. Why are they bringing Jesus to Pilate, to the Romans? It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That is, of course, true. Rome reserved the right to impose capital punishment. It's, it's a power thing. 
But that didn't stop the Jewish religious leaders from stoning Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. That didn't stop Herod from cutting off James's head or killing him with a sword, I think it says, in Acts chapter 12. These guys could have just as easily done the same thing to Jesus. So why do they insist on going through Rome? Anthony drew some of this out in Sunday school, actually. Jewish capital punishment was by stoning. They didn't want to stone Jesus. Why not? Because they knew the law. They knew Deuteronomy. They knew Deuteronomy 21, 23, that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so they're thinking, hey, no one will follow a man claiming to be Messiah if he is killed on a tree, if he is demonstrated and lifted up and held up as cursed by God. But, verse 32, all this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Christ is in control. The very thing they wanted was the very thing that he wanted. They wanted to show him as cursed by God, and he wanted to actually be cursed by God for us. Jesus in my place. The wages of sin is death. Galatians 3, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Where are you there? How are you doing on that one? Like abiding by all the things, every single thing written in the book of God's law and, and doing it. How are you doing with that? Are you, you're cursed. I'm cursed. That's all of us under the righteous judgment, the curse of God for refusing and reject him, for refusing and rejecting reality itself, blessing and life. What do we expect? All we're left with is death and curse. And that's why Christ has come. That's why he is continually throughout John been talking about his death in terms of being lifted up. Lifted up on a cross for us, in our place, on a tree, cursed by God, dying that we might live, dying that we might go free. Substitution at the beginning. Now look at the end of our text. Into verse 38, Pilate goes back outside. I find no guilt in him. Pilate's a coward. We won't do anything about that. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Substitution. This whole thing is a substitution sandwich. All that king stuff and truth stuff surrounded by Passover at the top, Passover at the bottom, and then Barabbas. We don't know a whole lot about him. He's called a notorious prisoner, a robber. You see the footnote there? Probably more like an, an insurrectionist. Luke tells us that he's in prison for murder. So here's a man truly, justly deserving of death. We know that Barabbas, the name, Bar, Abbas, means son of the father. We also have a decent amount of manuscript evidence that his first name may have been Jesus. This may be Jesus, again, a very common name back then, but his name may have been Jesus Barabbas. And this Jesus, the son of a father, a murderer, 
goes free. And Jesus, the son of the Father, goes to be flogged and mocked and crucified. Jesus dies and Barabbas lives. Jesus dies in Barabbas's place. It's a perfect picture of the gospel. It's been pointed out that Barabbas is the only man in history who can say that Jesus literally died in his physical place. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if he died in his spiritual place. Like, I wonder what kind of effect this whole thing had on Barabbas. He, he hears about this and he finds out. We, we don't know anything, entirely speculating. How did he respond to this salvation by substitution? No idea. But what about you? How are you going to respond to this salvation by substitution? What is your truth? What is most real to you? What is ultimate reality for you? Is it this man? Is it John 14, 6, the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Life only through Christ. God the Father, the center of reality, only through Christ. Jesus says in 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what we all want, to be free, truly free. And listen, sin only enslaves. Sin always, ultimately enslaves. If the thing that you are pursuing is sin, it, it will enslave you. It is nothing but bondage and death. But the Son, He sets free. The truth will set you free. Because the truth is that there is a God who is indescribably beautiful and so gloriously good that simply being in his presence, Psalm 16, is life and joy and pleasure forever. A God so amazingly gracious that though we sinned against him, sought to dethrone him, sought to kill him and be him, a crime against the infinite God which deserves infinite punishment, he comes himself and his own son and pays that punishment for us. This, this, this is the love. This is the life that you are looking for. Wherever you're looking for it, whatever you're looking for, ultimately this is the thing that you're longing and looking for. You're just looking in the wrong place. This is the king that created you and substituted himself in your place. Do you know this truth? Is this your truth? And if it's not, then the only application for you today is to repent and to believe. To turn from your sin and to turn to him. Believe and live. And I would love to talk to you about that after the service. Pastor Mike would love to talk to you about that. So there's a lot of people around you who would love to talk you through that after the service. Ask someone. Get some help. Christian, if this is your truth... Let's live like it. First, realize what it is that is competing with Christ to be king and truth for you. Realize that it is emptiness and bondage. And kill it. And trust the Christ who is the truth. Isn't Christ as truth 
Christ bearing witness only to the truth, Christ only speaking that which is true, means that there is, there is zero risk for you in listening to him. But what you feel will frequently lead you astray. But what you feel is not most real. At least a dozen times a day I feel something absolutely insane and stupid. That if I followed would lead to destruction. That's not what's most real. And you risk nothing. And you gain everything in completely entrusting yourself to Christ. And completely hearing and heeding his word. You will not be deceived. You will not be led astray. Good and good alone is what you will ultimately receive in receiving Christ, the truth, and the truth of Christ. The Father himself tells us, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, for he is the truth. Trust the truth. Somewhere around verse 38 of our text, Matthew tells us in 2719 that Pilate's wife sends to him, She's had some sort of vision, some sort of bad dream or something about Jesus. And Pilate's wife says to Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man. As Henry masterfully closed his Sunday school on that passage, and it, and it stuck with me ever since. And it's not because of the brilliant turn of a phrase, but it's because of the truth that was memorably and effectively communicated as Henry closed after describing the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ by saying, have everything to do with that righteous man. Have everything to do with that righteous man. Amen. By the grace of God, many of us have something to do with that righteous man. Praise God. I increasingly want to have everything to do with that righteous man. He is the king. And he is the one that has all power and authority and control. It is wise to be with the one who is the king. And he is the truth. He is the center of reality itself. He is the way that things ultimately are. It is wise to work and live in accordance with the way that reality is. And he is my substitute. And so he is my king and my truth. And he will never disappoint. He will never fail me or let me down. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Have everything to do with that righteous man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you with, for Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, Father, who is so other and transcendent and beyond us, so indescribably glorious and good that we can only begin to, to scratch the surface because of your kind revelation uh, to us. We can only have the, the barest hint of who this Christ is, the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. Father, that is the one who takes on our flesh and humbles himself and humiliates himself and stands before this wretched pilot and gives up his life to die that we might live. Father, that is, it's everything. That is everything. Help us to have everything to do with this righteous man. We thank you that we are counted righteous in your sight only and entirely because of what he has done in our place as our substitute. Father, I pray that he would increasingly be our truth. 
I pray that as we are confronted, I pray by your spirit with the truth that you would also be working in our hearts and helping us to see what it is that competes, what we're so prone to claim as our truth, to, to seek and pursue and live as if it was uh, most important and most real. Father, put Christ in that place. Father, thank you for putting Christ in our place. Help us to increasingly love him and live for him and find great satisfaction and joy in doing so. And we ask, as we always do, and we will continue to ask for those in here, Father, who do not know you, who have entirely been living as if they were the king, as if their truth is what matters, who are uh, dead in their trespasses and sins and separated from you. Father, may today be the day of salvation and life and forgiveness. May you grant them new hearts, eyes to see Christ. Grant them repentance and faith. Pray that they would turn from that sin and turn to Christ. Father, this is only something that you can do in us. And so we ask that you would do that uh, for people in here who do not know this Christ. Show us Christ, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.